Well, friends, uh, I must say uh, I have been feeling great lately. Why, you may ask? Well, it's because the soccer team that I follow uh, has won a great victory a few weeks ago. Uh, I actually got up very early in the morning to watch the match, which was played in London. Uh, my heart was trembling uh, as I sat there and watched the players that I love. And when the final whistle blew and they lifted the trophy, a uh, trophy called the FA Cup, uh, it was nothing but sheer jubilation for me. Now, I can tell from your faces that you don't care about soccer. Uh, but my guess is that you also have had this sense of victory in your life at one time or another. Is that true? Uh, perhaps the sporting team uh, that you follow has been on a winning streak lately. Uh, perhaps you've landed that business deal that you've been working on so long and so hard. Uh, perhaps your baby has begun to sleep through the night. Uh, whatever it might be, we've all had this sense of victory, uh, and it feels great, doesn't it? But if you are here this morning, and uh, you are a Christian person, I want to ask whether you have ever felt this sense of victory in your Christian lives. Now, I suspect that if you are anything like me, you might often feel the opposite. Um, you know, you fall to the same sin again and again and again, uh, or you struggle to commit to serving Jesus in, in the ways you know you should, uh, or your godliness in the home is not where you would like it to be. I think often our Christian lives can be filled with frustration like this, can't it? Uh, it? It's often very slow in progressing, and we can often feel defeated. And uh, this morning I want to ask us the question, is it actually possible to live the victorious Christian life? Is it actually possible to live a life of victory as a Christian? And if so, what, what does that actually look like for us? Well, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians for the past few weeks, and today we start a new chapter where Paul begins to speak to the Colossian Christians about very various aspects of the Christian life. And uh, very importantly, I want you to see that in chapter 3, he begins by speaking about uh, the motivation for the Christian life. Uh, the motivation for the Christian life. Uh, what is to be our motivation as we live the Christian life? What is the reason why we should continue to persevere and not give up in the Christian walk? Well, according to Paul, it's because of this profound reality that if your trust is in Jesus, and if my trust is in Jesus, then you and I are people who have been united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Uh, it's actually an idea that started uh, back in chapter 2, verse 20. Have a look at uh, chapter 2, verse 20. Uh, Paul says there, If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, see, you are united with Jesus in his death. But it continued in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. Again, you have been um, uh, united with him in his resurrection. 
Uh, you can see this idea again in chapter 3, verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you see what Paul is saying there? Uh, if you have put your trust in Jesus as the Lord of your life, uh, then friends, you have been so united with him that when Jesus died on the cross, your old life of sin and rebellion and death actually died with him on that cross. Further, when Jesus was powerfully raised to life from the grave, then you also were raised to a new life with him, a new life with Christ in heaven. Of course, uh, this is a spiritual reality for us now, isn't it? Uh, it's not always obvious who are the ones who truly have this new life uh, in heaven just by looking at them. Uh, that's why Paul says that this new life is hidden with Christ in God. But this new life that has begun is nevertheless as real and as powerful as Jesus' death and resurrection for you. And one day, when Jesus returns in glory, the reality is that your glorious new life with him will be obvious for all to see. And so, because the profound reality of our lives is that we have this new life with Christ in heaven, now Paul says, look upwards. Look upwards. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. It's important um, to understand here that we are to seek the things above, not because Jesus is somehow hiding from us, he's not playing hide and seek with us, but we seek him in the sense of having our hearts and our longings and our desires set on him and the new life that we have with him in heaven, such that it will shape our behaviours and our decisions and our very lives uh, here on earth. But it's not just our hearts that we are to set um, on things above, but notice also our minds. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Of course, uh, this isn't saying that you should not be uh, ever concerned about anything you do here on earth. Uh, Paul is not saying here that you shouldn't concern yourself with your studies or uh, your work or being a good uh, parent, for example. Uh, he's not saying that you shouldn't be doctors and accountants and plumbers because you know that's all uh, earthly things. But rather, Paul is commanding that we set our minds on the new life in heaven uh, as we read and reflect on the scriptures in ways that will actually shape all of our life, uh, including those things that we do here on earth. Notice that this is not mere moralism. This is not God saying, you know, you need to shape up in your Christian life or else face the dire consequences. 
Rather, it's God wonderfully saying to his people who have already put their trust in Jesus, look at what has happened to you. (laughs) Look at the wonderful new life that you have already been given with Christ in heaven and is already yours in him. And let that motivate you in, in your Christian life. It's a bit like being invited by a brilliant footballer like David Beckham, for example, to join his, his football team. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually a little bit overweight um, at the moment. Uh, don't laugh, I know some of you are as well. Um, we're very unfit, very uncoordinated. But imagine David Beckham asks us to join his football team. Uh, what will that be like, I wonder? Well, I reckon we would just run around you know, during the game, not being of very much use. Uh, some of us would collapse from our lack of fitness. Uh, some of us will run possibly in the wrong direction. Uh, some of us would not understand uh, what's going on. But uh, imagine you know, David Beckham running around. He, he scores all the goals. He wins all the matches. And uh, lo and behold, at the end of every match, Uh, He shares his glory with us because we are on the same team, because we are united to him. Now, uh, for a while, I'd imagine that we would be tempted to go back to our old way of life. Uh, Perhaps a life of eating chips and drinking, um, you know, Red Bull and watching television. But over time, we would watch him and his ways would start to rub off on us, don't you think? We would eventually at least learn how to run in the right direction. Uh, We would start to gain an interest in his tactics and the way he moves. And little by little, because we are united with him, because we are on his team, well, we would start to look a little bit more like footballers, a little bit more like him, won't we? That's kind of what Paul is saying here, I think, uh, to his Christian hearers. The way to live the Christian life is to look upwards at him and to see that we are united to him and to live a new life in him. Uh, Friends, if you only look inward all the time, in your Christian lives, to your own sin and failures, uh, you will only ever end up in despair. Uh, If you only look outward, comparing yourself to others, you will either end up in despair or you will end up being full of pride and arrogance. But if you look upwards, and see the risen Lord Jesus and your new life that is hidden in him, then you will have all you need to live the Christian life and to keep going in the Christian life. Are you seeking the things above where Christ is? Are you setting your mind on things, engaging your mind with the scriptures on the things above so that you are putting it into practice.
Now, friends, uh, it's precisely because of this profound reality of being united with Jesus in his death and resurrection that Paul is able to command victory over sin in our lives, uh, even though uh, it will be uh, gradual, uh, even though it will be progressive, even though uh, we won't be the finished product until Christ returns, uh, Paul is able to command that we can have victory in our lives. And that's why he says in chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You see, this is the language of victory, isn't it? It's the language of putting to death your enemy on the battlefield. You are to put to death all that is earthly and inconsistent with the life that you have with Christ in heaven, is what he's saying. Uh, what are we to put to death? Uh, well, you can see there that there are all sorts of things that Paul mentions first. And uh, I want you to know that in this first group of things, uh, that it's all sexual in nature. Uh, what he's saying here is that we are to put to death the sexual sin in our lives. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 5, sexual immorality is literally sexual intercourse outside of the exclusive marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Impurity is any sinful sexual behavior that falls short of sexual immorality itself. Uh, passion is often a positive word in our culture, isn't it? But uh, here it describes selfish sexual lust for another person who is not your spouse. Uh, evil desire probably means wrong sexual desires that are acted upon. And finally, covetousness refers um, specifically to coveting and craving sexual pleasures that are not yours to have. Uh, that's why it's called idolatry here, because it's about craving such pleasures in ways that consume our lives. Now, it's an extraordinary thing, don't you think, that out of all the things that Paul um, can tell us to put to death, first, the first thing he speaks about is sexual sin, isn't it? Uh, some critics might say that Paul is fixated on sex and that he doesn't believe in sexual pleasure and all the rest of it. But nothing can be further from the truth because the Bible is pro-sex and pro-pleasure in ways that, in the good ways that God has designed for sex to be used. However, the Bible does teach us that we are sexual beings and a moment of honest reflection should reveal to us that one of the big ways that you and I are tempted to ignore and reject God's word is in this area of sexuality. Is that true? In fact, I think especially for men, and I'm sure for women as well, when we are challenged by God's word about uh, the sin that is in our lives, the first thing that we think about is the area of sexual sin. Is that true? Now, there is so much to say here, but uh, I just wanted to tackle one thing this morning in the area of sexual sins, and that is the area of pornography. 
Uh, of course, the world will say that watching pornography, which is usually accompanied by uh, you know, fantasizing about somebody who is not your spouse and uh, masturbating as well, uh, the world would say that that is just a bit of harmless fun. And yet the statistics keep on showing us that pornography is instrumental in harming marriages and families, harming relationships, especially relationships with the opposite sex, because pornography actually trains us to view other people as sexual objects, and frankly, harming ourselves. Because those who watch porn have their ability to enjoy real sex with real people greatly diminished. Further, this is not just a problem outside of the church, but also a problem inside the church. Now, I don't know the precise reality, but uh, in my 10 years of being a pastor, uh, I know that this affects the vast majority of men. Whom I've, whom I've spoken to, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a struggle for many women as well, more and more. It's also a massive problem for our children and our teenagers, who are often exposed to the harmful effects of pornography from a very early age. And friends, um, I want to plead with you that we listen to what God says here and we get serious about putting these things to death in our lives. I think one of the key ways to putting pornography to death is to seek help. Um, if you regularly watch pornography or are addicted, then it is almost impossible, um, I, would, I might even say impossible, to beat this on your own. In fact, the latest studies show that watching pornography changes the brain. And those who are addicted have brains that look very similar to those of cocaine addicts, such as the strength of the addiction. And so because this is the case, my plea to you, and I'm also preaching to myself, dear friends, is that if you are watching porn, then speak to somebody, a Christian friend that you trust about it, or come and speak to me about it, uh, or one of the staff at our church. Um, and please be speaking to your children about it as well. We must put this to death. We must put these things to death. Now again, uh, this is not a threat by God. And in some ways, verse 6 can sound like a threat, can't it? Where Paul says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. But if you read on, Paul's point is, is different. He, he says in verse 7, In these you two once walked in the past. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. In other words, these things belong to your old life that was crucified with Jesus on the cross. But now that you have a new life with Christ, please, with God's help, live this new way. God will give you the strength to live that way that pleases Him. 
friends, uh, notice it's not just sexual sins that we are to put to death. Uh, for you'll see there in the next few verses that Paul proceeds to outline other sins that broadly have to do with the way we speak. Uh, in verse 8, Paul mentions anger and wrath, for example. Uh, I don't think this is talking about you know, the righteous anger, uh, like God's righteous anger, which is always right and controlled and proportionate to the sin uh, in question. But this is talking about human anger, which is often unrighteous and uncontrolled and out of all proportion to the sin uh, or the wrong that you've experienced. Uh, malice, uh, which is the next word, is speaking to people in an ill-intentioned kind of way. Slander is not speaking directly uh, to people, but speaking about them to others because you want to damage their reputation. Uh, obscene talk is crude language, which is a feature of our world. Uh, lying is not telling the truth and is of the devil, who is described in the Bible as the father of lies. Now, in many ways, there's a lot of overlap between these sins, isn't there? Uh, I mean, when I get angry with someone, uh, I might be tempted to um, speak to that person in a malicious kind of way or to gossip about that person and slander them uh, before others, uh, possibly by telling lies about them. Or I might even resort to using obscene language uh, to get my point across. You see, uh, it's very easy for one sin to kind of overlap into, into others, isn't it? And yet what Paul is saying here is that uh, whatever it is, um, these are the things that we are to put to death. Why? Well, it's for the same reason we've been seeing all along. Uh, verse 8 says, You have put off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, your old life, your old self has died with Christ and your new life has begun with Jesus in heaven. And as you grow in your knowledge of him, your God is committed to growing you more into the image of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, this week I came across a wonderful example from the past of how God, uh, God's grace can change the, the way people speak and use their words. Uh, I don't know whether you've heard of the Welsh Revival, uh, which happened in 1904 and 1905. But uh, in the Welsh Revival, about uh, 150,000 people in Wales came to faith uh, through the preaching of the good news of Jesus. Uh, many of these people who were converted were coal miners who were said to be among the most foul-mouthed people on earth. Uh, but after Christ and after uh, news of his salvation uh, ripped through these communities, uh, listen to how one biographer describes the change that happened. He says, Soul winning spread through the coal mines. Profane swearing stopped. Productivity in the mines increased. Even the pit ponies, the horses, were confused by the change in their master's behavior. 
as coaxing replaced kicking and hurting. Isn't that wonderful? It's just astonishing that even the horses noticed the change in these men uh, after they came to faith in Christ. But it's not just the men of the Welsh revival either. Uh, I was once somebody who was very foul-mouthed before I became a Christian and, and God changed the way I speak. Uh, I've known people who were very angry people, becoming more and more gentle and patient and self-controlled in the way they speak, especially to their spouses and others. I've known people who could speak about nothing but triviality, begin to speak about uh, the weighty matters of heaven and the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And it's happened as they've looked to Christ and as they've put to death the things of earth, as they've put to death their old selves more and more by God's strength. Are you putting these sorts of things away in your life? Friends, uh, what is verse 11 doing here? Uh, where Paul says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I mean, it sounds a little bit out of place, doesn't it? But I think Paul is simply making the same point that he has been making all along, that if you are a Christian person, then Christ has become the Lord of your life. Uh, he is everything. He is all. And further, if you are a Christian person, then you are so united with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection that he has come to live in you by his Spirit. He is in all. And so it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you are a student or a CEO. It doesn't matter if you are rich or poor whether you're single or married or a mother or a father, if you belong to Jesus, then he is everything to you and he is in you. And so you can put these things to death. I wonder what kind of a difference it will make to our Christian lives if you and I remembered that Christ is in us and is with us. When we switch on that computer or that television late at night when no one is watching, what difference would it make for you to know that Jesus is in you and with you? Uh, when you are tempted to lose your temper with your husband or wife and say harsh things, what difference would it make to remember that Jesus is in you and is with you. When you are tempted to lie to your tax agent so that you can get a better outcome on your tax return, uh, what difference would it make to know that Christ is in you? Well, finally, friends, uh, the Christian life is not just a life of putting to death the old self or the old life, but it's also about putting on the new self. However, notice that before Paul tells the Colossian Christians uh, what this new life looks like, 
Uh, he reminds them of the extraordinary privilege of being God's people. Uh, you can see it there in verse 12, where they are referred to as God's chosen ones. You know, God is the one who uh, owns the whole world, and yet out of all things in this world, he has chosen you to be his special prized possession. How astonishing. Further, they are described as holy. In other words, they have been made righteous and they have been set apart for God's purposes in this world. And finally, they are described as beloved. They are the ones who have had God's love lavished upon them beyond measure. What a breathtaking truth it is that we who belong to Christ, uh, belong to God rather through faith in Christ, are those who despite our sin are the ones who are loved by God. Again, this is not you better shape up or else face the consequences. This is to see how extraordinarily privileged you are as God's people and live like it. And so knowing this privilege, what are we to put on in our Christian lives? Well, you can see another list of things in verse 12, can't you? Verse 12, Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, uh, friends, uh, we won't have time to go through this whole list, and it'll be worth it for you and me to carefully think through each of these, these things in our own time. But for today, um, I just want to point out two uh, very important things. Firstly, notice that all these things that we are to put on are characteristics of Jesus Christ himself. Now, Jesus is the one who showed compassion when he wept for the city of Jerusalem. Jesus showed kindness in healing the sick. Jesus showed humility and meekness when he washed the feet of his disciples. Jesus was patient and forbearing with his disciples when they were slow to learn. Jesus was the one who forgave his enemies as he cried out on that cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so putting on these things is really about putting on the character of Jesus in our lives. And further, these are all things we have ourselves have received from Jesus, isn't it? For it is at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that we have received compassion and kindness and his humble service of us, patience and forgiveness of our Lord Jesus. And so if you have received these things from him richly and in full abundance, then go and do likewise to others. Not just seven times, not just as a one-off, but 77 times, says Jesus. But secondly, notice that all the things we are to put on are what we might call virtues. In other words, these are not just one-off behaviours, uh, rather, these are settled behaviours. These are habits of actions uh, or proper emotional responses that reflect the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And friends, I want to say, friends, that this is actually wonderful. 
because it doesn't simply limit us to one particular thing that we can kind of tick off in our lives um, to do our Christian duty. Rather, it opens up the wonderful possibility for many, many different actions as Jesus deeply transformed and shaped our character. Uh, take kindness, for, for example. Uh, you can't limit kindness to one particular action, can you? But the kind person, by God's grace, will find many different ways to be kind to people. Uh, giving a thoughtful gift, rescuing someone from drowning, helping someone caught in an embarrassing situation, saying something timely and helpful to comfort someone. You see, kindness is a virtue which can be expressed in a million different ways. And so Paul says, it is these things that God wants to see in you. Settled virtues that is outlived in myriad different ways. Now, I still remember my first day of work. Um, you might also, uh, if you're um, working uh, at the moment. Uh, I remember throwing away my university clothes, like my tattered jeans and my stinky sneakers and my stained tracksuit top that I hardly ever washed. And I remember putting on a crisply ironed shirt and tie and putting on a very slick um, uh, suit and uh, putting on my shiny polished uh, shoes, black shoes, and walking to work like a new person. You see, it's entirely appropriate to put on new clothing when you begin a new life. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. You and I who have died to our old selves with Christ on the cross and have been raised to a new life within, with him in heaven have to put on new clothes, new characters that reflect the life of heaven itself. Ultimately, it's about putting on love, which is why Paul says in verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. For love is you know, like that big overcoat that uh, you put on and it keeps all the other pieces of clothing in its place. It is the one virtue that sums up all the others. So put on love, therefore. So, my brothers and sisters, uh, how are you and I going in our Christian lives? Uh, how are you going in putting to death the things that are earthly? How are you going in uh, putting on the things that are heavenly? You might be frustrated by your lack of progress in your Christian life. You might be feeling defeated. Uh, you might be wondering, how on earth am I going to do all these things that are mentioned given the busyness of my life? But I want you to see very clearly this morning, friends, that God says to you and to me that this kind of life is possible. Indeed, you and I know people who are putting to death sin in their life, Sexual sins, perhaps, 
and whose speech is different to what it once was. You and I know people who are putting on the character of Christ and you've noticed the difference in them. But the way to grow in this way for yourself is ultimately to look upwards and to see the power of the risen Christ whose life you now share. And it is to know that Christ is with you and in you always. And it is to realise just how privileged you and I are as God's people, chosen, holy and beloved in him, that you will desire him, that you will desire the new life that you already have in him. So let me lead us in prayer and hope that God will help us uh, to live this way. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning and for the new life that you have given us in Christ. We thank you that our old selves have been crucified with Jesus on the cross and that we have now been raised to a new life with Jesus in heaven, which one day will become obvious to all when Jesus returns in glory. And Father, we thank you that we have been so united with Christ in this way that he now lives in us and the power of his resurrection is at work in us, making us more like him in our lives. Father, we pray that you would help us to live this new life. We pray that you would give us not a sense of defeat, but a sense of victory because of our Lord Jesus, so that we might indeed put to death uh, the things that we have heard about uh, in our lives and that we might indeed put on uh, the new clothing of Christ's character uh, in our lives day by day. Father, if there are specific things that we need to repent of this morning and put to death this morning, or specific things that we need to put on, uh, we pray that you would help us and strengthen us to do these things uh, for the glory of our Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.